Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is the last laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and for this Thanksgiving week, we are revisiting one of my absolute favorite interviews from last fall with the star and creator of HBO's How To with John Wilson. I spoke with John Wilson a year ago this week when his bizarrely brilliant show was just about to wrap up its first season. This Friday night, the show has its triumphant return on HBO something John wasn't totally sure would happen after COVID totally transformed New York City. Before we get to the conversation, here's John with a little recap of what happened since his show was on the air and why we should be so thankful to have it back. Hey, New York. There's a lot of stuff that happened since the last season of the show ended. You had to spend a whole lot of time inside and got really close with just a handful of people. You got really good at cutting your own hair and discovered exciting new ways to entertain yourself. But you still found a way to show up for work every day and treated yourself to a vacation whenever it felt safe. And just when you thought that things were going back to normal, the nightmare just seemed to continue. A lot of people thought that we wouldn't be able to make another season of the show. But we did. And it still has all your favorite stuff uh, from the first one. New York looks more interesting right now than it ever has before. And even though you lost a lot of what you loved, it really made you appreciate what you still have. So don't be upset if you feel like you missed anything along the way. Because you don't always realize you're in the middle of history until it's over. Hopefully by now you've had a chance to check out season one of this truly remarkable show. And I can tell you that I've had a chance to see all six episodes of season two, and it does not disappoint. Okay, let's get into it. This is me with John Wilson. Sorry, something very strange just happened. I got a very weird package in the mail that I'm trying to make sense of. <laughs> okay. It's from the waste management, the Department of Waste Management. And it's just, it's like a hat and and there's no indication of who it came from. Maybe they just wanted you to have a, have a hat. I Yeah, that would be really nice. It just, it's something, I don't know. I'm always, I, I, I get very, I, I'm just naturally suspicious. <laughs> I don't know. My friends often pull pranks on me and I, I don't know it was a prank until years later sometimes. <laughs> so thanks for doing this. I have to tell you, I came to your show a little bit late. It was, it had been on for a couple of weeks when I started watching, but I had just, it, basically everyone in my life just started telling me, you have to watch this show. It's insane. It's so good. Um, and, you know, once enough people tell you that, you, you start watching. And I, I have to say I agree. And now I'm one of those people who's telling everybody in my life that they have to watch it. And I'm just become kind of obsessed. So thank you for that. Oh, yeah. Thank you. It's really funny. I see people, I've seen a couple of tweets online from people that have the same experience as you 
only when they finally watch it, they hate it and almost resent it because of how <laughs> many people told them to watch it. So yeah, it could have, uh, you know, it could go either way. Yeah. And I, and I was also a little bit worried that talking to you would kind of break the spell of the show because it does kind of feel like a, a magic trick watching the show. But I just I couldn't help, uh, you know, reach out and, and see if you would talk to me because it's just I think there's just so much obviously that went into it. Um, and I'm just excited to, to talk to you about it. So, I mean, to start, because we're talking now when the show's been on for a few weeks and when this comes out, we'll be around this time that the finale airs. What is the feedback that you've been getting like, you know, from people either in your life or just random people since since it premiered about a month ago? The reaction has been really interesting. <laughs> I don't know if I want to say that, actually. Well, now, now you have to say it. When you say, I don't know if I want to say that, that means... Yeah, that means right. Well, yeah, good. I mean, the morning <laughs> the morning after the, the pilot aired, a lot of people that I used to date all texted me around the same time. <laughs> really? I think just because I speak about my previous relationships in that episode and it's kind of a revealing episode and and um i think <laughs> they had uh it was just like a kind of a, a flood all at once and it was it was nice to hear from everyone again mm-hmm. i don't know sorry this sounds very strange <laughs> no no the, the reaction has been really interesting because when i when i release something usually it's it's often i would always self-release stuff on vimeo the, the reaction was always kind of predictable there would be a few diehard fans that would share it and for the most part, it would just kind of have a very kind of unremarkable premiere on the internet. I just kind of wasn't prepared for it to become a conversation among people that I don't really know. You know, I, I, I would always just make these movies for, you know, originally I would just screen them for my roommates, you know, and that was the only real kind of audience reaction I would receive from these. And then over the years, I would show them at maybe a festival or a small venue but it's it's just been really shocking to see people respond positively to the work because I was afraid that it was going to be too niche for prestige TV audience. But it seems like people are really thirsty for something that feels real. Absolutely. And it's also the kind of thing where you, you spent a long time making these six episodes, right? I mean, a lot went into it. So it's kind of like this long process of making it. And then all of a sudden, they're all going to be released within six weeks. And that must be strange, too, to kind of like now have it all almost all out there. Yeah, I'm sad it's almost over. But it's been really rejuvenating to see people respond to it online. Because, you know, I've seen each episode a couple hundred times. <laughs> yeah. And I am I was just so tired of each episode by the end of the editing process. And I, I couldn't even like I could barely find humor in it anymore. And, you know, maybe that's just part of the editing process for most people. But it's been really refreshing to see that, oh, yeah, this is funny. And it reminds me of the first time that I watched assemblies of the episodes and how exciting that felt to me. So, yeah, it's it's been a long time, but I you know I'm used to spending a long time on these things. You know, usually historically, I would spend about a year just filming casually to make a 10 minute episode uh, or a 10 minute movie. You know, with this, we had to obviously scale up. So I had to make, you know, six 30 minute episodes in a year and a half or so. But, you know, and I wasn't really sure how to do it at first. Nobody was. We had to kind of learn along the way. And we tried a lot of stuff that did not work. But everything you see on screen is the stuff that 
did. Is there something that is there an example of something that didn't work that that didn't make it in that you either wish had or you know you kind of you thought it was going to be something special and then didn't end up making it in? Yeah, you know, at one point during the pilot, you know, I I put hidden cameras inside of like a shoe shine store and um I wanted to see what the kind of small talk was like in, in an environment like that and how that affected the relationship between like the shoe shiner and the person with the shoes. And there was one funny part where this one guy didn't make any small talk with the shoe shiner and then paid and walked out, but he didn't realize that he had accidentally dropped uh, like 20 bucks or 50 bucks. I forget what the bill was. And the shoe shiner didn't chase after him to give it back to him. <laughs> he actually kept it. And I think that was, I, I, I thought that maybe that was because he didn't make small talk with the guy, but <laughs> it's hard to tell. But yeah, you know, little experiments like that just pepper throughout each episode. And sometimes you'll see the beginnings of it in an episode. And I just tried to, I try to follow each thread for as long as I possibly can until it's exhausted. And um, you don't always see the end of that thread, but sometimes you see the beginning of it. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, doing hidden camera because it does seem like that's really not what most of the show is. It's you, you know, holding the camera and being there, even if we're not seeing you. But are there moments in the show where the per- then where people didn't know they were on camera? Yeah, I mean, some of the, I mean, a lot of the sidewalk footage. Right, because you're sort of far away and... Yeah, a lot of the B-roll was filmed surreptitiously. But, you know, after you shoot it, you approach the person and you you know, you tell them what you're filming and maybe even show them the clip and then ask them for a release. And more often than not, they sign it. It seems like that must have been a huge part of this and and hard to imagine watching the show that you actually got releases from all these people. But I mean, you, you had to. <laughs> yeah, it was a colossal challenge. It was something that I didn't, I thought this would have been the biggest hurdle, like while scaling up. Because when I was doing it alone before, I never really had to worry about image releases as much because the stakes were so low and my platform was kind of, it wasn't viewed by that many people. So I was worried that we would like that, that, yeah, image releases would be a big thing that would make something like this aesthetically just impossible, but it actually wasn't, you know, and this is where all the money and all the time went, you know, people ask like how like, you know, like the money isn't on screen, you know, like, you know, people are confused. They, they wonder how an HBO show could look so pitiful, but <laughs> all the money and time goes into making sure that everything is real, you know, and making sure that because you can you can fake any one of these shots, you know, but spending the time find things that you couldn't ever really invent is the real magic of the show for me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, for me the the magic trick that you're doing is this is linking the the voiceover your voiceover script with the images that we're seeing and sort of and lining them up and I know that was sort of a hallmark of your short films that you were doing before this as well. How does that actually work? Do you just have a uh do you just build up a massive sort of um archive of of clips that are organized in a very obsessive way or or how does that how does that come together? Yeah, I have I have a method that I I kind of taught to my assistant editors where I like to lump things, you know, I like to keyword every shot, you know, that it tells you very plainly what's in it, like time of day, maybe the season, exterior, you know, interior, sidewalk. There's that process, but then there's the process of kind of of thinking more abstractly about the material. So, I like to have a I like to have a timeline that is only you know, only footage of of awnings or, you know, street signs or 
like vanity plates or dog shit, just whatever. Once you have enough of something and you, and you recognize the pattern, then it becomes its kind of own sequence. So I, I have those that I'm constantly pulling from, but I also have like the editors and I, we each have our own separate, just like favorites, you know, sequence of, because we all have to look through every single piece of footage and we all have multiple times, which is you know, and we have a psychotic amount of footage. Yeah, you you can tell. Yeah, so so we each have our own string out, like a sequence of just our favorite shots. You know, the the most either inherently funny or inherently beautiful, just shots that we really want to see in the show. And then let's say we pick a shot of you know someone doing something funny. That on its own, we need to. It doesn't work on its own, so we have to then basically you know I'll write a gag leading up to that moment where that's the punchline. You know, so it's it's kind of this reverse engineered process where, but you know, it's, it isn't always like that. But that that's like the that's something I could point to as like a process thing. You know, as I said, it's hard to people have been recommending this show to me and now I'm recommending it to people and it's hard to describe for sure. And it's definitely hard to describe why it's funny, I think, but it is so funny. And it really, you know, this is my, this podcast, I talked to comedians and I don't know if you would consider yourself a comedian, but this is a definitely a comedy show in a lot of ways and is, and there's just so much comedy in it. So how do you, how do you think about that in terms of striving to make this stuff funny and in addition to being, you know, um, everything else that it is and it's sentimental at times, it's, you know, thought provoking at times and all that. But how do you think about the comedy of it? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it just so happens to be a comedy, but I approach the work as a documentary, first and foremost. It may sound silly, but I, I do consider this like the highest form of documentary in a way. I, I just wanted to basically invent a genre where I could do all of my favorite things from nonfiction and fiction films, but yeah, mostly nonfiction. And when we pitched it to HBO, we pitched it to the comedy department because because people thought the stuff was funny. But I'm not really part of the comedy world, you know. It's like I don't I don't know many comedians, you know. Nathan is 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 much more dialed into the the world of professional comics. Yeah, Nathan Fielder. He he came on as a producer when you were pitching it or sort of before you were pitching it? Oh, he came on way before we started pitching it. I was not prepared to pitch this without someone like Nathan. I mean, I didn't have ambitions to to have an HBO show, you know, like I didn't really my career, my entire career has been this Mr. Magoo kind of thing where I just I'm just blindly walking from place to place and end up meeting people. And I try not to over plan too much. So Nathan and I met actually by chance a couple of years ago. And the night we met, we just started talking about each other's work because he had seen something that I did. And he wanted to, he encouraged me to pitch, to basically come up with a concept for a show and pitch it. And then he set up all the meetings and we went, you know, I went to Hollywood and uh, we pitched it to four or five different places and HBO obviously uh, I think had the best deal because I like HBO and they also don't have any commercials, which is very cool because I don't like the way that commercials end up making, like turning your, turning up like what should be a, a single film into like a four act thing, yeah, like a three or segments. four act thing, you know, and, and, and I really don't like the way that affects the art. So that's why HBO is great. But I would have been laughed out of every single room if Nathan <laughs> wasn't sitting right next to me. Yeah. You know? 
um, you know, his show is also one of my favorites, Nathan, for you. Was that something that were you very sort of tuned into what he was doing as well when when you met him? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I was a I was a gigantic fan uh, of Nathan for you before we met. You know, I would watch it religiously with friends just because I thought it was one of the smartest television shows ever made. I never thought we would really occupy the same reality. Uh, but here we are. And he has, I don't know, he's taught me so much. He is so good with story and obsessed with realism. And um, he is great when you're trying to fight legal battles. Is there a story you're thinking of when you when you say that? Well, it's nothing specific that I, I feel like I, I'd care to talk about here in the show. But just like finding little loopholes in in what is legal for us to do and show. He's really good at, at kind of finding those loopholes. I would imagine that's why, uh, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen brought him on as a, as a writer for his uh, Showtime series, Who is America, for some similar reasons that he's he's good at that stuff. Yeah, totally. Um, one His influence, um, you know, the influence of Nathan for you, is, I think is definitely felt in that first episode, especially in the relationship that you form with this guy at MTV Spring Break. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and and sort of how that happened and developed and, and really became the heart of that, that first episode, how to make small talk. Yeah. So I was, you know, I tried out a bunch of stuff, like I said, for the small talk episode, uh, some things that didn't work out like the shoe shiner thing, but I went to the travel agent to book a vacation and she ended up having, you know, it ended up being this really wonderful scene where she like opens up to me and she is talking about her, you know, previous marriage. And, you know, I, I just let her talk for as long as she want, wanted to. And I didn't expect for that, you know, and I was planning on going to Cancun because that was just like another part of my small talk arsenal to go on vacation. And then I was going to go there. So I'd have something to talk about when I returned. And when I got there, obviously, there was the MTV thing going on. And I was clearly overwhelmed. And I wanted to find, you know, and then I, I met the guy in the lobby who was rapping and I realized at that point that he was also there alone and yeah. And then we just, he was kind of hard to get a hold of after that night because he lost his phone. So I would really, I would really just have to like, I would see him intermittently walking around, but I knew that I kind of wanted to get to know him a bit more and, you know, figure out why he came alone because I thought that was really peculiar and then we had that conversation on the beach and we both said things that felt like we needed to get off our chests. Yeah. I mean, it's such a powerful and, and impactful moment, you know, especially when he's telling you about his, you know, losing his, a friend to, to suicide. And that sort of is what made him go down there. And it's it's just one of many unexpected kind of, you know, moments that that happen in this show. And I heard you say that, you know, it was uh, Nathan Fielder who who kind of said he wanted to have one at least one moment like that in each episode where you something just that you you sort of can't believe that you got this on film so how did you how did you approach that and maybe we can talk through um you know some of the other episodes what moments really stick out to you that you maybe even in the moment when you were capturing it couldn't believe it was happening yeah so we try to have at least one moment you know one unbelievable moment in each episode at, at least one and uh, sometimes you get multiple. Yeah, it's it's hard to know when these things are will happen or where to find them. But 
it's kind of just a numbers game. Just the more things you try, the more people you talk to, the higher the probability is that you'll get something exceptional or honest, you know, from someone that is just something you've never heard before. You know, that's like the biggest rush I get making this work is the thrill of maybe seeing something that no one has ever seen or hearing something that no one has ever heard and capturing that for the first time in a way that it hasn't been captured really. So I think we would have, if we didn't capture something one of a kind for each episode, we would have just kept shooting until we found it. But it just so happened that these things naturally organically occurred. And it's kind of terrifying to think about how much sheer coincidence goes into making something like this because it makes it you think that it, that must be impossible to replicate especially if you're not really going in with a with a concrete plan and just kind of seeing where things lead you yeah i i, I you know when i was like because we had like a a, a semi formal writers room for the show and I wrote down which topics I wanted to focus on and maybe some people I wanted to talk to or some subjects that I, 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 I wanted to talk about, but like it was very loose and I'm amazed that HBO put as much trust in us as they did because it was, you know, a lot of the time it would be me walk, walking around, just walking into random doors and there's a van of people a block away ready to emerge with, you know, image releases and stuff like that. Or or to help you out if you need help. Yeah, but yeah, thankfully I didn't really need that much, I mean, that much help. Before we move off the unbelievable moments, I feel like I have to ask about the uh, the moment in How to Cover Your Furniture that has gotten a lot of attention, which is the the man who, who shows you his foreskin stretching device that he's created. How did that happen? And what were you, what was kind of going through your mind when he started showing you that? Yeah, it, it, it seems like people are reacting very strongly to that. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't sure how it would be received. Um, <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny that, um, the episode about covering your furniture had all of the most graphic parental advisories at the, <laughs> at the very beginning. Right. But you know, I can't say we didn't warn you. But yeah, so I saw the anti-circumcision billboard in Union Square when I was going to the Petco. And I talked with that guy for a while. He gave me the number of the TLC Tugger guy and told me that he made the device that could regrow your foreskin. So I reached out to him and went to his house and filmed that whole scene. So I was already kind of emotionally prepared for what I saw. So, you know, people ask, like, you know, how did you keep your composure or whatever? I knew exactly what I was getting myself into. And, you know, I also wanted to see it just because, you know, I was really excited to see what this guy's domestic life was like. And I did not expect the pulley on the bed. That was that, <laughs> that was not advertised on his website. That was a homemade device. That was maybe just, just for him. Just for him. Uh, maybe not for his wife. <laughs> the thing seems to work. I mean, he was a circumcised person. And he has a big foreskin now. Like, it's... <laughs> Right. I mean, people ask people, just because people asked if it worked and it, you know, and I'm just so confused when people ask that because like, You're like you, you can see it, that it, it works. The, yeah, there's HD genitalia. Right. I mean, you can <laughs> see it right on, on screen. You know, it's right there. Obviously, it worked. Coming up, John explains how his comedy is fundamentally different from someone like Sasha Baron Cohen. 
And later, he previews what fans can expect from season two. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. We have had some really fascinating conversations with other comedians who turn real life into comedy, like Sasha Baron Cohen, Jordan Klepper, Jenna Friedman, and more. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to those episodes and everything else from our free archive, and you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to John Wilson. So I mentioned Sasha Baron Cohen, who I think you maybe there's been some analogies drawn just because he also interacts with real people. I thought it was really funny. My my mother-in-law actually had watched the show before I did and, and described you to me as an inverted Borat. <laughs> I think I think by that she meant that you were uh inverted trying, like an inside yeah, out man. Yeah, like uh that you were trying, you know, to not to expose people in the way that maybe he does, but rather to humanize them or show something about them that that we wouldn't otherwise see. So I was curious what you thought of that analogy and do you feel like there is a sort of fundamental difference between what you do in relation to what someone like he is doing? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess people compare it to whatever they're familiar with. So if people compare my stuff to Sasha Baron Cohen's work, that's fine. But like, to me, it it's it's something completely different. I like to give the microphone to people that usually don't have it in a, in a way, just because I, I feel like we're just we've had the same kind of diet of TV characters for so long. And I just think that we're just so like, whether or not we realize it, just so bored of all these cliches. And um, it's even if the person isn't is is just like a totally normal person, like it is exciting to hear a, a new perspective or a new idea. I, I don't know how to, I, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's a very, it's very basic. I don't know how else to put it. Just like, I like to give people time to speak in their own words and everything is just over edited these days. Even in the new Borat, I like they had that whole political theater thing with Rudy Giuliani. And I, I, I just wish that it wasn't as over edited as it was. You want to see you want to see what really happened. Yeah. And I'm, it just makes me feel like they're trying to obscure something. I did like that movie more than I, I, I thought I was going to like it. But um, no, I know what you mean. And it's it's what, you, what you're doing, I think is so different because it is it's letting although, of course, we don't we don't know what we're not seeing. But I think, you know, as you've said, you really are trying to show reality. And that's that's not necessarily what a movie like Borat is is doing it's creating a it's really creating a fiction with real you know moments yeah and and i i just want people to feel comfortable and when they're watching my stuff and kind of 
know and believe that it's real because it's like, I don't want there to be any of that tension in my work where you're trying to figure out what's real and what's not. Um, because I, I feel like that's what takes the fun out of something that has more of like a prank element to it. Like you're not sure where the narrative in Sasha Baron Cohen thing begins and ends sometimes. And you can't tell like, and so much of the comedy relies on the tension that is produced by like a, a real life situation. And if you can't tell if it's real, the tension disappears and it, it, it doesn't have the same comic effect. So like, that's why I, I just like, I want to start from the same place with every kind of subject and just let people know and give very clear indications that this is a real person in a real situation, just so you know, it's okay to be sad or happy, like, and, and know that this is like a real situation. Yeah. The other really unique thing about the show, I think, is that you appear almost entirely in voiceover and we get maybe a few glimpses of you along the way, but that's really not something that that I've seen before and that and it's not something that you usually see in shows like this, including like Nathan for you, for instance, where he plays a much larger role. Is that just how you're more comfortable or do you, is that a decision that you made and why do you prefer it that way? I don't want to shoot myself because I, I feel like I'm the least interesting part of the image. That's another thing is the imagery that we've become used to. You expect to have a kind of a host to anchor the image, you know, but there are so many more interesting images to be made and like so much more visually exciting things to do. But I don't want to diss anyone that does that per se. You know, it's like, I love the way Nathan does it. Like Louis Theroux is one of my favorite like BBC documentarians and he's always front and center in his stuff, you know. I love that stuff. Billy on the street also came to mind as someone who runs around New York talking to people, but he's very front and center. Right. But it's it's a different thing. You know, I want the imagery to be the star and I just want it to all be really rich and unique. And I, I want to produce images that haven't been made before because that's that just like supercharges the whole piece for me. Like, because I don't think that we just need another dope on camera. <laughs> telling you what you're looking at, like just pointing at stuff. I, I don't know. I, I'm just a dope behind the camera, I guess. But <laughs> So I, I don't want to spoil the finale for anyone who hasn't gotten a chance to see it when they're um, hearing or reading this. I think it's safe to say that the coronavirus starts to creep into the reality of the show in a, in a way. Um, so how did that affect, you know, your ability to finish this show and what made you want to really make that a, a part of the a show in this final episode? So the coronavirus shutdown started in the middle of the production of the finale. Basically every single production shut down, but the beauty of my show is that I can continue to shoot by myself without anyone around and there's no dip in production value because it always looked like shit. Yeah, you kind of made a pandemic proof show. Yeah, it's it's kind of yeah, this thing where I, you know, I, I am taking on the kind of a lot of the liability myself and I didn't always tell them what I was doing. So sorry, HBO. Uh, but <laughs> I realized that it was like a kind of a very decisive moment for me where I, I, I realized that I needed to capture as much of this in real time as I possibly could because every single day was like things changed so quickly and people's attitudes about what was safe changed really quickly too. So not to spoil, hopefully people have seen it by this point, but that whole section where I'm walking through the grocery store and there's that massive line 
looking back at it now, it's a really fascinating document to me because basically nobody was wearing masks. Some people were wearing gloves. I realized, you know, like the supermarket rush right when the shutdown began was probably the biggest super spreader event of all. Everyone was doing the exactly the wrong thing. Yeah, exactly the wrong thing in really tight spaces. And everyone, I'm, I'm amazed that I didn't get it, you know? And even, even like the guy at the yard sale who I was talking to, who was trying to sell me the bust of JFK or whatever, who sold me, like I was trying to buy a pot from or a, a, a pan from him. There were these two twins and uh, I was talking to them in that little back room and asking them about the coronavirus. I forget what the date was. It was like around the 12th of March. And he said, you know, don't worry about it. Uh, it'll pass. And then I panned to his twin brother and... I think in that moment, I later found out that he was, I think, I think he had coronavirus in that moment because I checked their Instagram like a week later and he was like hospitalized. Oh my God. But he's okay now. I see him around the neighborhood. They're both fine. But yeah, I didn't really know what kind of danger I was putting myself in, but it was just something I felt like I had to do. Yeah. And I mean, and so now you have this show that really captures New York in a way that it is not that it doesn't currently exist because in this in the early episodes, then this transition period, and I know you've continued to shoot footage since wrapping. Um, do you have an eye towards what you would want to do with this footage that you've been shooting sort of throughout and during the, the pandemic in New York? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I never stopped shooting, even though I don't currently have the green light for another season. Uh, you know, this is just my resting state. I just don't want there to be any gaps in coverage, no matter what, just because this is such a kind of a strange, precious time in New York right now. And yeah, I have like multiple episode ideas that I'm just shooting. And I just some of them are kind of motivated by the limitations put in place by the virus. And who knows how long this is going to go on for. But I don't want to just assume that someone is going to capture everything the right way. You know, I just want to capture it as well as I can my own way before these kind of things disappear and this way of this new way of life. I don't know. I think that documentary is like works best as like a historical document a lot of the time. And I just feel like the, I, you know, I always say that even if my, even if my movies kind of fail as a memoir or, or a comedy, uh, hopefully they'll at least succeed as just raw footage of uh, New York during a very specific time. Yeah, I mean, I think you you could have a, a fascinating second season that really focuses on this on this time and this moment. Um, so I really hope that you get to make it because I I would really love to watch it. Yeah, that that was one thing I was like worried about is is coming out with the show now. This is all you know. The show is mo almost all pre coronavirus, and I was afraid that people would not want to time travel back to pre-COVID, you know, and, and that people would think it was kind of crass to talk about these really kind of petty things that that don't have as much relevance to the political or, so, you know, social climate right now. But I feel like I was wrong. Yeah, I think so. I think, yeah, there's something really almost comforting about watching these uh, these episodes that, that take us back to a, a time that feels suddenly unfamiliar. Yeah, I hope so. But yeah, and but I'll also have the same anxiety about, you know, like, will people like once once maybe a vaccine is farther along, <laughs> yeah. and maybe we're re reverting to normal ish. Um, will people want to uh, be reminded of this agonizing period that everyone wants to forget, but I'm not going to stop either way.
<laughs> so usually on this podcast, I ask comedians about another comedian that's really made them laugh hard in their life. I'm curious, you know, with you um, in terms of comedy and maybe even, you know, we could talk about like documentary comedy. Is there something that that you were really influenced by or that that really has made you laugh in your life that you took something from? Uh, yeah. I, one of my favorite uh, filmmakers of all time is this guy, George Kuchar. I don't, I don't know if you've heard, but he, he's, he's kind of like a seventies B movie filmmaker, but he, he makes these documentaries called, uh, the weather diaries where he just goes to a motel in, uh, I think South Dakota and every year. And he just tries to document extreme weather, but just gets so distracted and makes these really bizarre short films that, incorporate you know footage he shoots of the news or people around town he just gets really distracted and doesn't really film the weather <laughs> and the way it's edited and his sense of humor is unlike anything i've ever seen and i i really feel like i connected with it um i don't know if he's a comic really <laughs> but maybe he's something he's doing something similar to what you're doing which is uh which is fitting yeah i, re I really love like what he does. He's, he's no longer alive. <laughs> when fans of your show are clamoring for something else to watch when they finish the uh, six episodes, they can seek that out. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> John, thank you so much for, for talking with me about the show. And it's just, it's incredible and fascinating and, and so funny and great. And, uh, I just, I think everyone who has not gotten a chance to see it yet should check it out. So cool. Thank you so much for asking me to do this. And I'm, I'm really glad you connected with it. Yeah, and good luck with everything, and I'll, I'll be looking for that second season. Yeah, yeah, fingers crossed. All right, that was my conversation with John Wilson from last fall. I really hope you enjoyed that and that you check out season two of How To with John Wilson when it premieres on HBO this Friday night, November 26th at 10 p.m. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes, and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at Claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.